0: At large, I'm Leonard Lope in a new memoir from Astra House titled "Rivermouth: A Chronicle of Language, Faith, and Migration." Alejandra Oliva, a Mexican-American translator and immigrant justice activist, provides a chronological document of her experiences beginning in twenty sixteen when she started working with immigrants to Chicago as a volunteer interpreter helping new arrivals to fill out forms to apply for asylum. She's worked in immigration advocacy roles from court observation to a full-time communications role with the National Immigrant Justice Center, to accompanying people to service agencies and meetings with immigration and customs and enforcement officials. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to our show now. And Alejandra, congratulations. Your book has been receiving rave reviews.
1: Thank you so much, Leonard, and thank you so much for having me.
0: You begin your book in a church basement near Washington Square Park here in New York. You were, mm-hmm. you were interviewing an asylum seeker just 11 days after Donald Trump was sworn in as president. Did the process change much during the four years that followed?
1: It absolutely did. Um, the The forms themselves were the same, and the, the sort of paperwork required of folks was the same, but um, as different federal policies were pushed through and as different um, sort of requirements were pushed through, the... Um, the requirements and the burden of proof any individual person going through the system needed in order to actually gain asylum increased tremendously. Um, A lot of people were sort of categorically shut out of the system Mm. because of um, court decisions or rulings that meant that their particular experiences were no longer seen as grounds to receive asylum. There were a lot of different moving, shifting things, and it was, often very difficult for individual people who were trying to sort of figure out how to move through it, often without attorneys, because attorneys can be very difficult to find in the immigration system. Um, So people that were navigating the system themselves had a very difficult time sort of finding their way through it because of how quickly things were moving.
0: So the demands of the American immigration system are rather complex.
1: Yes. How much has
0: changed during the Biden administration?
1: Not as much as I individually would like. Um, there are certainly things that have gotten a little bit better. But I think in particular, when we're talking about the asylum system, we have seen the Biden administration sort of pass these regulations and these um, these requirements that are very very similar to ones that the trump administration attempted to pass but were eventually shot down by the courts and i think the biden administration is in the same kind of legal proceeding right now with um federal courts placing injunctions removing them placing bars on whether these policies can actually be used or not and so there's a lot that's remained really really similar from the previous administration in this one
0: Hadn't you begun working with immigrants to Chicago as, as a volunteer interpreter in 2016, helping new arrivals fill out forms to apply for asylum? What did that process entail?
1: So I actually started working with new arrivals in New York City. Um, oh, new
0: York City first. Yeah. <laughs> but I just assumed Chicago because you're a Chicagoan.
1: Yeah, yeah, I live here now, but um, it's been kind of a winding road to get here. And um, I went to college in in New York. And then um, when I graduated, I was working in the publishing industry um, and kind of felt like there was something that I could be doing, a way that I could be a part of uh, the immigration system, which everyone was kind of talking about and worried about um, in this immediate aftermath of Trump's election. Um, You'd also
0: and, been in divinity school as a graduate student.
1: Yes, that was a little bit after this. Oh. Um, it was something that sort of called to me, I think, a little bit as a result of my work with um with immigration and with with folks who are navigating through the system and kind of seeing that the work that I was doing, like you mentioned, is located in a, a church basement. And I'd been raised evangelical and suddenly realized that that all these people that I was working with, all my fellow volunteers were were coming to this work out of very often religious conviction. And that really led me to reevaluate, you know, what I thought this faith that I had been raised in was actually about.
0: Uh, your parents were Mexican. I'm surprised that you were raised a evangelical.
1: Yeah, no, They're uh, among the rare Protestant Mexican-Americans. Um, and, uh, yeah, was raised evangelical, sometimes in kind of... Um, churches that really emphasize like the gifts of the spirit and having really direct communication with God. And that was something that, you know, I never experienced growing up that felt very foreign to me. And so, um, you know, it was very easy for me to, to feel estranged from, from that faith that I was raised in.
0: Were most of the interviews fairly long? Didn't some of them go on at least for a couple of weeks
1: yeah so we would hold kind of open clinic hours one day a week for a couple hours um you know from about 5 30 6 p.m till about 9 p.m and so you know the form that folks have to fill out is this very horrific mixture of um extremely minute like bureaucratic details you know it asks for your last addresses for the last five years which for someone who's been on the move and you know by definition is a migrant can often mean pulling back uh, to a lot of different addresses. Um, it asks for you know all of your siblings and where they're living now. It asks you for any political, religious, or sort of uh, civil society affiliations you've had over the last five years. And then in addition to all of these little minute details, it also asks for details of really traumatic experiences that you've gone through, um, the sort cool. of core of the form is is based around those questions.
0: The traumatic stories that force them to leave their homes. Exactly. Where were most of them coming from?
1: Um, many of the people that I was working with were coming from El Salvador and largely Honduras.
0: Honduras and where again? El Salvador. Uh-huh why there were those countries going through political turmoil at the time
1: um those countries have been in a process of destabilization i also um i think also the kind of news of the clinic ran through different communities at different times so for a while for example we would get a wave of garifuna people who are from Honduras largely and they're an indigenous an Afro-indigenous uh, community living in coastal Honduras and, and so for a while a lot of the people coming to the clinic were from there specifically and you can kind of tell that the news was passing from like neighbor to neighbor and friend to friend and and people sort of within that micro community were, were learning and so there were different like waves of people like that that would come in less because of whatever was going on in their home countries and I think just because of the way news and information spreads in a city like New York and immigrant communities in New York.
0: So race was a factor of skin color?
1: Um, it could be.
0: Well, because you said that many of the people affected um, were originally from Africa. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. So uh, the Garifuna people are Afro-Indigenous, which means that I believe that they're an Indigenous community that um sort of over time took in people that were escaping the triangle trade that were escaping slavery and and so they have these very like distinct beautiful culture of of folks that um are living sort of along the coast uh there's a lot of like fishermen there's a lot of things like that um in those communities
0: and you ask them what things had happened to them or through their families that led to the decision why they were scared to go back home and what they were worried would happen if, would happen if they did.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and so sometimes these were folks that were being displaced um, from their communities because of increasing tourist development or increasing just like international corporation development. Sometimes they were people who had experienced a um, the sort of overflow of of gang violence in their neighborhoods and in their communities and and had decided to flee because of that. It was a, a real mix of of things that people had had encountered.
0: Is this what's called credible fear?
1: Yeah, the credible fear interview is um, sort of a step before this and that's just a very basic interview usually done by an asylum officer um or a customs and border patrol official and they um it's sort of like the very baseline interview with very little material evidence required but that you need to sort of prove that your fear of returning to your home country is credible and so when you're filling out the asylum application which is kind of the process that we're talking about it is um That's when sort of the material evidence starts coming in. That's when people start asking for dates and times and and a specific order of events in a way that is a little bit more relaxed during the credible fear interview, but still has um, tremendous consequences. Because if you are not judged to have a credible fear, you can be sort of immediately deported, immediately um, turned back out of the country.
0: How long were the asylum request forms? Sounds like you had to throw in, put in a lot of details.
1: They're actually surprisingly short. It's only about 12 printed pages sort of in the, in the format of a a tax document, like those same little boxes, those same little um, formatting in general. And the boxes where you had space to put in folks' stories and the sort of narratives that they were talking about were often, you know, fit about 150 words. And we were doing... Very very base level um, um, form filling out. If folks were working with attorneys, for example, then they would have room to do an affidavit. They would have room to provide, you know, any material evidence that they happen to have alongside it. Um, there were all of these other things that could sort of be appended if you were able to work with an immigration attorney. But like I said, uh, finding an immigration attorney that will actually take an asylum case in any different city, in any different part of the country is extremely unlikely. Um, Asylum applications can take years to work through and um, the system is completely overburdened at this point.
0: What is La Lista?
1: La Lista is um, this thing that, was sort of government policy, sort of informal practice that at least I saw working in Tijuana in 2019 when I went there to do accompaniment work. And it was a list where people would go and write down their names, and they would be given a number. And then every morning, a certain number of people would be called over by their number. Um, to actually be able to cross the border. And so you had people waiting for weeks, months sometimes, um, to actually be able to cross the border and present themselves and ask for asylum. um, In a city that was not really set up for that, in a city that could often be dangerous and would sort of force people into finding whatever kind of accommodation that they could, especially when they were traveling with children or with older people or with people who had different kinds of accessibility needs. It could put people into really dangerous situations just by making them wait for for a sort of extended and uncertain period of time.
0: Well, how did they survive? How did they Get enough money to pay for food and things And housing and things like that Transportation
1: um, There were a lot of shelters that were taking people Particularly with families or with children in um, There are also There's all kinds of sort of informal economies That have sprung up around um, Around the sort of waiting and, and holding of people that happens in these border towns And um, you know there are places that you can go and wait to do day labor kind of work um there are and certain cross organizations. The border and
0: do work and then go back
1: uh no in in mexico in tijuana oh. still um there's all kinds of of you know small odd jobs that still need to be done in mexico um and much like here migrants are a group of people that are quite easy to economically exploit and so um people were are able to um, hire folks for, for less than a living wage and and are able to sort of take advantage of the fact that they're in dire straits.
0: Still, this sounds like a heavy burden that Mexico must bear.
1: It absolutely is. Um, and there's a number of fantastic nonprofits and, and organizations across the border who are doing work to support migrants who need it. But um, it's still a tremendous amount of Work and effort and sort of logistical mess that we've pushed across the border effectively through our through our border policies.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at large is Alejandra Oliva. Her book, Rivermouth, a chronicle of language, faith and migration published by Astra House. This is WBAI New York. 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You say that you realize the language used to define and express the immigration experience often wound up being about large movements of many people and the needs of individuals were lost.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, A lot of the ways that we talk and think about immigration are often in numbers. And I think that we saw that particularly during the migrant caravan in 2018-2019, where we would be talking about a flood, a river, all of these big sort of Mm. overwhelming water metaphors, essentially. um, Forgetting that it's all individual people who are traveling across the continent on foot, hmm. trying to find a place that feels safe, a place where they can start building their lives. Um, and I feel like that's still largely true, even as we're seeing sort of different different forms of migration that aren't necessarily caravan based. Um, I think we still tend to talk about immigration in in sort of demographic, large-scale terms, rather than rather than focusing on the individuals in question.
0: In fact, you say it's not a number of games. It's not just a demographics issue. It's about individual people, individual families who are trying to do the best things for themselves and for their families and trying to sort out what comes next.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: How complex is the bureaucracy, the paperwork, the, the nature of the questioning?
1: Um, it can be incredibly complicated, um, and it can often be really obstructionist in helping people survive. So, for example, the asylum applications that I was helping people fill out were really complicated. I don't think that if you even if you had English, it would probably be pretty challenging to fill it out on your own. Um, and so that is due from a year after somebody sort of is judged to have entered the border and then you still need to wait i believe it's six months right now from the date of that with a clock that can be started and stopped depending on different factors to even start getting your work permit in order to be able to hold down a job while your case sort of moves through the system and all of the different things that happen through there um in that process and then That, In that in-between time, you also being on sort of public support, public assistance can be damaging to your immigration case. Because if you are judged to be what uh, the immigration system calls a public charge, which is to say someone who relies on social assistance to get basic needs met, um, then your asylum case can be denied even if you have a... A solid case for for pleading asylum and so there's all these little inconsistencies and hypocrisies and and challenges that people need to to work through at sort of every single step of the process
0: you write and i'm quoting to be an immigrant is to belong to two worlds while also belonging to neither solid land is hard to come by and what's left to the immigrant is the watery dream world of the river, which sweeps them along in ways you can only half understand.
1: Yeah, um, I think that that still remains really true. You know, there's this there's a saying that I think came out of Mexico of or of Mexican immigrants to this this country, which is "ni de aquí, ni de ya, and um, that means neither from here nor from there and i think that that is you know partially true it's also true that folks are from both or part of both and um i think that there's often this sort of watery questionable not firm logic to figuring out things like survival like safety like um, you know, building and growing a life here in this country that um, that requires fluidity and flexibility and creativity from from folks who are trying to do just that.
0: Well, I've traveled all across Mexico, and it's my sense that what we're really talking about is a number of different countries, pretty much with different peoples, different languages, different cultures. So, what happens when somebody from Costa Rica or Honduras comes? Are they seen as totally foreigners?
1: Uh, you mean in Mexico? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely um, a growing antipathy in Mexico towards the migrant and towards you know people who are. Non-Mexican and Mexico remains a huge traveling route for a lot of people, but thanks to a great deal of um, U.S. money, especially and and funding and financing, it means that people are um, the the Mexico border, the southern Mexico border is becoming also increasingly militarized, uh, full of surveillance, full of um sort of repellent tactics against migrants and um the same is true you know throughout the the entire center of the country as as the politics and the the sort of incentives given by this much larger much wealthier country are are made really clear that um migrants should not be welcome migrants should not be allowed to travel through the country
0: who's sending money from the united states Well, you're not talking about the government, are you?
1: Oh, no, I am. Um, There are a tremendous amount of sort of collaborations and cross trainings between um, sort of the Department of Homeland Security, all of the U.S. sort of border apparatus organizations, and the Mexican government.
0: But then there are times when there are tensions between the U.S. and Mexico, often having nothing to do with this. Do they affect this situation?
1: I am not sure. I'm not like a international foreign policy expert necessarily, um, but this is one of those those places where the United States is definitely using its, its money and its might to sort of exert influence. And while there may occasionally be tensions, I think this is one of those places where the U.S. definitely sees it being in their benefit to... To continue funding these um, these sort of hmm. expellent, uh xenophobic uh, processes,
0: but adding to the tensions are the uh, actions of uh, governors of neighboring states. Uh, you know, Governor uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who who put buoys in the river to prevent people from coming across and. Some and there, I, I, I don't know how many have died.
1: Yeah, no, that is horrifying, inhumane treatment. Um, I'm sure that many people at this point have seen the pictures and have seen the headlines about the ways that these are, you know, not just barriers to crossing, but incredibly weaponized and incredibly. Um, sort of violent means of preventing people from crossing. And um, I wish I could say that those were sort of unique or special, but in reality, uh, so much of the United States' immigration policy can be summed up by this idea of prevention through deterrence, which is this, um, this sort of policy or practice of making the international crossing so difficult that we theoretically prevent people from attempting the journey we've seen through you know about 20 30 almost years of this being in being a policy or being a, a practice that it doesn't actually work we we have not successfully deterred people from attempting to come here attempting to seek safety in an asylum, which is, again, they're right. Um, and instead, we see people getting hurt, suffering lifelong consequences, dying as a result of these policies. And so I think it's time for, for reevaluation of those.
0: How much irony is there in all of this? We're a nation of immigrants, and yet throughout our history, we have limited immigration to Asians, to Eastern Europeans to Southern Europeans uh, we've tried to uh, limit it to Northern white people mostly
1: yeah absolutely I think there's a tremendous amount of um,
0: and these are dark um, people aren't they mostly
1: yeah they're they're largely people of color people who would not really be recognized as white under you know US understandings of what that means and um you know, I think that there have been different groups and different ideas of of who belongs in this country and who is an American and who should be allowed to be an American. And that's shifted over time, you know. Um, but I think that we are looking at at a moment of real, real difficulty and real racial discrimination as we talk about immigration in this country today.
0: You relate many sad stories like what happened to Sarah a woman who was seeking asylum at the San Isidro border crossing. Mhm.
1: Yeah, so what Sarah was there? a woman. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No,
0: I said what happened there?
1: Yeah, Sarah was a woman that I met um there in Tijuana and she um she was there with her partner and her baby and um one of the days that I was there her partner and her child crossed the border sort of on their own. Um, and by on their own, I mean, without Sarah, Sarah stayed behind. And the logic behind this was that men and children together got detained far less time, if at all, than um, than women with children or, or men on their own. And so the idea was that By doing this, her partner and her child would not have to spend any time in detention. And Sarah could come through after and meet up with them. And that is essentially what happened. Um, I don't think any of them spent very much time in detention. They would have been separated by the US government anyway. I I think that there used to be one full family detention center in Berks, Pennsylvania, which was recently shut after a great deal of uh, work and activism. Um, but they would have been separated anyway in some way. And crossing in this manner meant that they could take that risk on themselves and have what little self-determination they were able to in order to ensure that as much of their family was safe for as long as possible. That being said, it was still incredibly, incredibly difficult. And I watched Sarah, you know, go through this this really difficult time of not knowing where her partner was, not knowing where her baby was um, and kind of figuring out how she felt about it and how she was going to react and how she was going to, when she was going to move through the system herself. Um, But I really think that it's, you know, U S immigration policies that forced her into that choice and forced her into that, that decision-making that should never have happened.
0: So our immigration policies involve separating families. How does anybody justify that? Or is it just ignored?
1: I think it's largely just ignored. You know, there was a, a brief moment of a really rightful spotlight on it during the Trump administration when we saw... Um, mothers and children being absolutely needlessly separated in huge, huge, huge numbers um, with terrible record keeping. That mean that some of them still have not been reunited today um, with parents being deported without their children. And I think that there was rightfully a huge outcry to that. But I think that, you know, after the outcry and after all of this, that kind of thing is still very much happening. It's just happening on a smaller scale, happening in ways that are a little bit more subtle, I think, than they used to be. And so it's a lot easier to ignore. It's a lot easier to sort of take your eye off the ball, so to speak, and um, to sort of pretend that it's not happening, but it it very much still is. Um, And the way that we treat migrants in this country the way that we sort of cover immigration news means that it's very difficult for these stories to be told or for it to really be understood at a large scale, that this is this is still a practice of the U.S. government.
0: You're listening to Low Pity at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I
1: pity the poor immigrants who wishes he would have stayed home?
0: I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Alejandra Oliva. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, Rivermouth, a Chronicle of Language, Faith, and Migration. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero. during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2 WBAI.org or 212 209 but don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much and return now to Alejandra Oliva uh, the book, again, Rivermouth, A Chronicle of Language, Faith, and Migration, published by Astrahaus. House. And this is also a, a memoir. And you, Yeah. You, so you tell the stories of your parents who immigrated to the United States before you were born. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so my parents came to the U.S. together, uh, I think, a year or two before I was born um, for my dad to get his Ph.D., Um, which is a very different story than the ones that I am, you know, that I've been encountering as part of my work as an immigration advocate and a very different immigration story than the one that we often tell ourselves, um, especially when we're talking about immigration from Mexico. And Because he was
0: admitted to a doctoral program in Boston. Uh, That's not typical of the people we're talking about here.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, The way that I think I like to summarize it is that my parents immigrated because they could, not because they had to. There was no sort of push factor um, making it unsafe for them to stay in these places where they lived their whole lives. There was nothing um, that was making it unsafe or dangerous. And so... You know that's a very different way of of entering a new country. It's a very different way of setting up a life. Um, there's a tremendous amount of privilege involved.
0: Now, hadn't your mother been born in Mexico?
1: Both my parents were born in Mexico. I um, mean, my... she
0: wasn't born in Texas, your mother. I'm sorry.
1: No, no. Um, my grandmother was born in Texas. Oh. She um, she was born in Brownsville. Um, so did that give a... him
0: automatic U.S. citizenship because his mother? Exactly.
1: Yeah. So even when they immigrated, my dad was already a citizen, had already spent um, a great deal of time in the U.S., you know, visiting family that still lived here. Um, you know, he spent a year staying with a family friend in Ohio, learning the language. And so there's there's all kinds of um, ways in which my my parents and my family stories uh mm-hmm. Not really atypical, just not the story that is often told about immigration.
0: We could say privileged, no? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: They they had both logistical and financial privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, what about your grandparents and grand- grandparents?
1: So my grandmother, like I said, was born in Brownsville, and her family we moved to back- Mexico when she was, I think, like, eight or 10 years old, um, because her father, who was a GI came back and couldn't find a job where they were all living and was able to get a job in Mexico with family because he had a, I believe a Mexican mother. And so my family on my paternal grandmother's side, at least was a very, um, was one of those families that's always lived across the border and especially back when the border was so open, it's very, very common for, for folks who live along it to sort of live life on both sides to, you know, end up living on the opposite side from the one that they were born or to, you know, get married and live on one side for one while and then come back to the other. And so there's a kind of circling around the border that my family does, especially on my paternal grandmother's side. So you- um,
0: so did you grow up bilingual?
1: I did grow up bilingual. Um, I believe I spoke Spanish first by a matter of a couple months, maybe, and then English sort of came in very quickly after that.
0: But you say uh, work was, was a part of the process. Don't some people see even now cross the border just for a day job and then go back to Mexico?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's all kinds of, um, sort of industries that are happening in border towns, um, that mean that people will cross particularly into the U S as opposed to into Mexico for the length of a day. Um, all kinds of sort of casual occupations that people do or not casual. I think like it's very often physical labor. It's very often, you know, really challenging work, but, um, not for, for extended periods of time um, that mean that people will cross over and then go back home.
0: So the people who make it across the border legally or not often wind up harvesting the food we eat, and staffing our restaurants. In the end, does it come down to deciding what metrics we should use to measure who deserves to come to the United States?
1: Um, I think that it so much of our industry right now really, um, depends on immigrant labor and particularly undocumented immigrant labor. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it is incredibly easy to economically, uh, exploit people who are here without papers. Um, it is incredibly easy to pay low wages, to, put people in terrible, terrible working conditions to um, sort of say, you know, if you need this job for survival, then I'm going to make sure that you are going to barely survive this job. Hmm. And I think that It is not really a question of deserve. I think everyone deserves the chance to come here. It is also a question of strengthening our labor laws, of ensuring that people have um, the right and the ability to earn a living wage from any kind of job that they pursue. I think it is a question of, um, I don't think immigration should be an economic question, is I think kind of what it's coming down to. I don't think that. Someone's survival should be uh, Hmm. based on their ability to immigrate. Um, And I don't think that somebody should need to sort of prove the hardship that they have been through in order to immigrate.
0: So what's the point of humanitarian systems that distribute aid conditionally?
1: Um. I mean, I am probably kind of a radical in this, but uh, I I don't think that they should be distributed conditionally at all. I think that you know, if someone is asking for help, then you know they probably need it. It is in our best interest to help them, and maybe we have all of these systems in place that mean that we are only que- we only respond to certain kinds of calls for help. We only respond to certain kinds of um people who are able to prove that they are are experiencing some kind of hardship that they are that they are disempowered within their own lives um, in order for us to help them. And we do not like thinking about immigration as an empowering act as an act that people take um, to sort of exert agency over their own lives. And I think that I think that people, It is an incredibly, incredibly empowering act. It is an act in which um, someone, you know, decides to change their own life. And I think that if you are taking these steps to do that, I think that you should be allowed to. I think that we should have welcoming systems that don't force people to re-traumatize themselves in order to prove that they have been through sufficient trauma and very specifically correct kinds of trauma in order to be admitted to the to the United States. Yeah.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Alejandra Oliva. Her book, River Mouth, a Chronicle of Language, Faith, and Migration, published by Astra House. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. When uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott started busing migrants um, from the, uh, the, the United States-Mexico border to Chicago last year, weren't you there to welcome them after their 18-hour bus ride?
1: I was. um, I was there um, as part of a nonprofit that provides legal services. And so um, since we received almost no notice, almost no notification that this was going to start happening, um, I was, you know, one of the people that could pull off the projects that she was working on and sort of put into this role of of talking, of sharing really basic informations about what people's rights and responsibilities were now that they were in the U.S. because very many of them had just, you know, barely arrived 48 hours earlier into the United States and then spent 18 of those hours on a bus to to Illinois. So you, you
0: connected them to the right agencies and made sure that they all knew where to go?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, The city of Chicago did a really, really fantastic job, um, especially in those early days, in sort of setting up shelter systems, setting up donation spaces where people could come and bring uh, really important things that people might not have brought with them, like winter coats and, um, you know, the kinds of clothes you might need for a job interview or... Toys for their kids, things that are that are difficult to carry or or don't make sense for you to have if you're coming up from from South America. Um, and so, it was a really really wonderful um, experience to sort of be there to see the welcome that the city was able to give in those early days to people as they were arriving.
0: And you said earlier you've also worked as a volunteer in New York City. To, mm-hmm. Is is it pretty much the same process? The Chicago, and um, they're both considered kind of, I guess, um, blue cities. What, what, what about when people arrive in, in red cities?
1: Yeah, so um, I think the processes are pretty much the same because it's a federal system, essentially, that people are going into. And I'm less sure about what it looks like in red cities. I've never done this kind of work in in red states. But even then, you know, there are organizations, there are people, there are neighborhoods and communities in in at least every city I've been to that are set up and there to to welcome people and to provide legal support if they need it, um, very often to provide different kinds of support. I think the main difference in a red state is that there may be fewer government programs that people are eligible for or that they can that they can make use of. And so life can be more challenging in those situations. But there's still, you know, incredible communities of people, even in the reddest of red states that are there to to welcome people, to ensure that they're treated fairly, to to make space for them.
0: New York City Mayor Eric Adams has called for the federal government to declare a state of emergency to manage what he calls the crisis at the border. He said the influx of asylum seekers could end up costing New York billions of dollars in the coming years and that over 57,000 migrants are under the city's care on an average night. Nearly 100,000 asylum seekers have sought shelter here since last year. Wow.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, is New York th- the the,
0: uh, the major city this is happening to? Or is, is Chicago experiencing something similar?
1: Chicago's experiencing something relatively similar. I think our numbers are a little lower because we're a smaller city, because the busing program has been going on for not as long. Or um, I do think Adams is wrong is in calling for a state of emergency rather than just the diversion of federal funds from uh this incredibly huge sprawling surveillance and militarization system that we have at the border which is not working because new york city has received a hundred thousand people in the last year and instead spending some of that money on finding shelter finding housing finding food finding job opportunities for people who are here and arriving continually you know we know that our systems of deterrence and of turning people away are not really working, and so rather than than calling for a state of emergency um or maybe in addition to calling for a state of emergency and appropriating FEMA funds, which you know ICE already does pretty quickly um, we also just allocate some of ICE and cBP's funding towards instead of putting people in detention. Instead of, um, you know, putting money in the pockets of private prison corporations, uh, instead going towards community organizations, um, housing, food, schools, all of these places that need it, not only to accommodate migrants, but to accommodate the communities that already live in New York and and that already use these services. uh, a friend of mine the the reporter carlos Ballesteros, noted that you know if the chicago immigration system was or if the chicago shelter system was so badly strained by the arrival of i think we had at that point about 10,000 migrants and it was already sort of beginning to to stretch and and look like it was in trouble if if 10,000 people are, are coming into your shelter system and making it feel like it's about to collapse, then you did not have a strong shelter system to begin with. So I think that migrants and, and talking about it as a migration problem is, is a, a kind of a red herring here. And I think it's more of a, a problem of incredibly underfunded civil supports and civil society that take care not just of migrants, but of, of everyone in communities.
0: Well, the mayor's office said that New York City has spent $1.5, $1.45 billion during fiscal year 2023 on shelter, food, and services for asylum seekers and could eventually spend upwards of $12 billion from fiscal years 2023 to 2025 without policy changes or, or further support. He also has to—the mayor also has to deal with— um, Tensions in in the neighborhoods that we're putting these people. Many people are complaining about the tent cities that we are erecting to house them, and and um, and the and the, uh, the hotel rooms that they're being put into. So, this is not a problem that's going to go away in the near future, is it?
1: No, and I mean, again, I think the federal government has a great deal of uh, both power to fix this problem and responsibility for causing it. Um, it's not just a question of reallocating funding, but also, again, this huge gap that I mentioned between arriving in the country, filing for an asylum um, claim, and then also later on being able to get a work permit. There is, you know, months if not like years of a gap there and so the sooner people get work permits the sooner they can you know become integrated into communities strike out on their own get their own housing their own food their own shelter and the longer that the federal government sort of puts that off and makes people wait the the more the problem becomes something that people don't have any agency to fix or are unable to sort of take care of themselves.
0: Well, no matter who the president is, uh, isn't the lack of bipartisan support for programs a serious problem here?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, Is it simply a political matter, a matter of, uh, uh, I don't want to give my money to these People who are trying to come to this country, even though only uh, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, my grandparents came here?
1: Yeah, I think that there's there's a lot of that sort of like, well, this is my hard-earned money, and why should it go towards them? But we're still paying for, you know, instead of paying to help people, we're paying to hurt them. Um, you know, Texas citizens are paying for those buoys, um, and us citizens are paying for a tremendous amount of police action and like immigration police action and um a tremendous 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 amount of uh immigration beds across uh, immigration detention beds across the country and we also know that our our deterrent systems aren't working and so Again, if we take the money that's already being spent and simply divert it into treating people humanely as opposed to harming them, i I feel like that's still, you know, not a matter of spending more money. And there's uh, this constant fear that if we make people's lives even a little bit easier throughout the immigration system, that they will, that the only thing that's keeping people back from immigrating to the United States in like huge numbers is that we treat people very badly, but we treat people very badly and there's still Hmm. many, many people who are coming here. And so I just think that by, by treating people humanely, by treating people as people instead of as logistical problems, as economic problems, as um, sort of law enforcement crime problems, um, and treating them as people instead, then that is the answer to a more humane immigration system that doesn't necessarily involve spending any more money.
0: We have just about a minute and a half left. Is there anything you want to add?
1: uh no, I feel like treating people like people um throughout the immigration system is is pretty much the thesis of my book and the thesis of the work I do, and so I feel like that's a good note to end on. Thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you so much for being such a good guest. I've been speaking with Alejandra Oliva about her book, Rivermouth, A Chronicle of Language, Faith, and Migration. It's published by Astra House. And as I said before, congratulations on all the great reviews you've been receiving.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me, Leonard.
0: And uh, that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to... Uh, Here more of our one-hour deep-dive interviews. You can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has now far surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. That's L-O-P-A-T-E. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you and the show coming to you. Right now we're going through a pretty rough time, and there are all sorts of um, drastic suggestions being made as to how to keep us going. But it seems to me the best way is for listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with to Call 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAR.org right now because we need your help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content information you don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who uh, makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez Lodge right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Rivermouth, A Chronicle of Language, Faith, and Migration by Alejandra Oliva. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to wbaiorg That's 212-209-2950 or give in the number 2, WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a, a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. We'll say thank you if you do that by uh, sending you a uh, BAI tote bag if you become a sustaining member of BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But if you can do it for $10, 15 20 $25 a month or more, and as long as you wish. It really is great for us because it allows us to plan for the future. I hope you can join us again tomorrow when we discuss a new book called Illmatic Consequences, The Clapback to Opponents of Critical Race Theory. We'll see you then.